The glory of the manger, our God, is the fact that it was not merely a baby, but it was in some grand mystery of the universe. You, the eternal Son of God, enfleshed in humanity in the fullest sense. Not in any way diminishing or laying aside your deity, but fully taking on the reality of humanity and the mystery of the Incarnation that you might be for us the one who was born so that men may no more die and may have forgiveness and life and hope. All of the things we just sung about. And we, these things are revealed to us in your most holy word, the Bible, given to us, preserved for us, handed down to us through the generations, that we might forever gaze upon your glory while here on earth, not by sight, but by faith, as we understand the words long written down for us. And so we pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would, by faith, by the work of your spirit, expose this glory to us in yet another and deeper level than, than you have before. And so we ask you these things and we pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. It is always fun to sing Christmas music and we're so thankful for those God has uh, given to us who have the gift of music, the, the ability to sing, the ability to play instruments that many of us probably wish we had better than we do possess. I certainly do. That's not a, an area that God has uh, gifted me. Or at least that's not what others say despite my, my appeals to the, to the opposite. But in fact, we are blessed for this beautiful music. And, and there is something particularly engaging about the music of Christians and particularly the music around Christmas time. That's why even unbelievers and those who have no particular commitment to Christ or interest in Christ throughout the other part of the year uh, find a certain delight in singing Christmas hymns and singing songs that really include some of the most profound truths to the world, and particularly to Christians, but the music itself has a kind of joy, a kind of hope, really a hope that everybody longs for, whether they understand the true content of the meaning or not. And it's been noted plenty of times that what sets Christianity apart beyond the content and the doctrine is its worship. There is no other religion in the world that contains the songs of joy and hope that Christians have. The, the songs that we sing are themselves a reflection of the uniqueness of the glory of God and the salvation that He has provided to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice in that. And we rejoice because we understand, even as we read in the book of Titus this morning, which is the message throughout all of Scripture of the greatness of grace. We have, who know Him, received grace and we've received mercy we've received forgiveness of sin and we've tasted of the goodness of God by faith we've believed his promises we've believed in his testimony about Christ and about salvation and we are particularly uh, enjoyed or enraptured by that or find a joy in it because we know what we've been saved from and so as we've looked at these last few weeks at the groundwork for the gospel, which is found at the course of the very beginning in the opening of Scripture. 
And the groundwork is, namely, the promise that God has given to us, a promise that he gave to us, being humanity, in the very midst of our fall. Our fall referring, of course, to our fall from a previous state of innocence, if you will, a state of without sin, to the state of guilt, and the state of being in sin, or having sin, and therefore all of the consequences that come with it. And this is laid out for us in Genesis chapter 3. So read with me, if you will. We won't read the whole chapter. We'll pick it up in verse 14. And read with me down from Genesis chapter 3, from 14 down to verse 20. And then we'll swing back around and look at this a little bit more closely. Cover briefly where we've been and where we're going. So Genesis chapter 3. Beginning in verse 14, this of course begins the judgment of God, the announcement of the punishment and the consequences for sin. Verse 14, And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and you to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, this passage, recording the entrance of sin into humanity, contains the doctrine that comes down to us very often as the doctrine of original sin. Original sin refers to this point of the fall, this point at which sin entered into the reality of humanity and became the defining spiritual reality of all who have come by natural generation from Adam and Eve to everybody who exists on the face of the planet today. Because of their sin, we inherited from them a fallen and corrupt nature. Because they are our first parents. And with that fallen and corrupt nature, we have inherited as well the same and even greater, actually, an intense acceptability to the deceptions of Satan So as we have noted in the past that Satan is said to be the God of this world, the one who holds men captive to do his will, who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It was the entrance of man into spiritual death. And the consequences of this are many. At the heart of these are... The entrance into a state of spiritual death, into a condition in which man dies physically, and into the threat of the reality of eternal death, which is the second death. 
which is precisely what God promised. In the day you eat of it, you shall die. And so the problem is that sin has entered into the world and we now live in the conditions of Genesis 3 and of the fall. And the punishment was both natural and supernatural. The natural result of this sin, the punishment was a divine curse and the consequences that sin brought in the relationship between man and God and man and each other, particularly man and woman, husband and wife, and man and creation. And so at the very first instance of sin entering into the world, we find Adam and Eve hiding and blame shifting and turning on one another in treachery, actually, each willing to let the other be condemned for their own faults. And so we have covered this. The condition is then that of consequence of sin is that man has been alienated from God, has been infected and corrupted with disordered desires, disordered relationships, disordered affections, disordered hopes, and live then in alienation from God and from one another. They hid themselves from God, and yet in the midst of their hiding, God proves himself as he shows himself to be throughout all of Scripture, a seeking God. The man would hide and all men would run from God and forever turn their back on him. God yet doesn't turn his back on those who bear his image. Instead, he seeks them. He seeks them out. He sought out Adam and Eve, even as he seeks out men throughout the history of the world. And then we come into verse 14. And the divine curse that God brings upon both the serpent and the ground and the earth. And that is something to notice, that in this judgment of God is that he curses not Adam and he does not curse Eve directly, but he curses the serpent through whom sin came into the world and he curses the ground on which man must live, now in turmoil and by the sweat of his brow. We noted at the beginning of verse 14 that there are Two realities to this curse. It says in verse 14 to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field on your belly you will go. Dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And then he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Notice that he is giving this curse to the serpent. This is literally a a serpent, a beast of the field that came into being in Genesis chapter 1 as a part of God's creation. And yet he is more than just a beast. He is an embodied beast, possessed, for lack of a better term, by another, namely Satan. And yet, being the embodiment of the evil one, of another spiritual reality... The serpent is as a beast punished and he's punished by being made to crawl on his belly all the days of its life eating dust, which we noted was in fact a symbol, a demonstration of the ignobility that this creature would always bear. It's really a a position of shame, being at the lowest point of all the earth. It would be an animal that sought to raise itself to the highest point to stand above man, to bring in man into subjection to its own deceptive purposes. 
Now it's made to crawl on the bottom, the lowest place of earth. And we noticed even in the millennial kingdom, even that time where there is a rejuvenation, a restoration, a removal of the curse on all the land in Isaiah chapter 65 verse 25, still the serpent is noted as eating the dust, eating the dust of the ground. The enmity between you and the woman, again speaking to the serpent, has a certain literal aspect to it in speaking of the Enmity and the conflict, really the disgust that has always existed throughout human history between snakes and men and snakes and women in particular. But there is far more going on here. Far more going on. The serpent is in fact a beast, but a beast embodied by one who is sinister in his intentions a spiritual being that is intelligent a spiritual being that has a design for the ruin of God's image bearers the serpent is repeatedly identified with Satan throughout the New Testament I won't repeat all of those he is repeatedly identified as the serpent who deceived Eve and led humanity into sin and therefore the crawling of on the dust of the of the serpent as a beast is but a reflection also of the one behind the beast, of Satan's ultimate ignobility, his ultimate dishonor. He who was exalted in his position as a created being is the one who will be cast down into hell. Jesus said that hell was created for Satan and the angels who fell with him in Matthew 25. And so coming from a highest place of glory as a created being... In the presence of God, he is the one who will be cast to the lowest place of hell under the judgment of God with all who followed him. This is pictured in the beast crawling on his belly. Sometimes, and this is worthy of note, Satan is in popular culture shown to be the one who is the ruler over hell, pitchfork in hand, long tail trailing behind, horns out of his head, flames all around him. That is, in fact, an image that comes from him himself. It is a distorted image. It is not the reality. He will be the chief sufferer of hell. His torment will go up day and night forever and ever. And the demons who fell with him fear the judgment that is coming upon him, which is why when Jesus was present on the earth, they came up to him more than once and said, You have not come here to torment us before the time, have you? knowing the end that is coming to them. And so there is in this picture of his, the beast crawling on the ground, ignobility and ultimately even of judgment. The enmity between the serpent and the woman is far more than snakes and man. It is an enmity here that exists between two classes of people. He says here, your seed and her seed. Your seed and her seed. The seed here, as you note, is singular, referring, really having two ideas behind it, as being a singular, not referring only to one, but really to collective classes of humanity. As we speak of crowd in the singular, referring to many people, that's how the seed is here being used. It is one, and yet it refers collectively to a whole class of people. Uh, this, this term is often translated as descendants throughout Scripture, and particularly the Old Testament. Here it is 
referring to a kind of people, a class of people that will come, one in line with the intentions and the nature of the serpent, and one in line with the nature of the woman, one that would ultimately destroy the work of Satan, the work of Satan. Notice there that this one is also, while collectively is narrowed down to a person, he shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. So while this is in one sense a conflict between two classes of humanity, it is also ultimately a conflict and will be between the head of one race and the head of another. And it will be a conflict that results in pain for both, and yet for one, it will be a temporary pain, and for the other, it will be a fatal pain. Bruise you on the head speaks of the ultimate demise and destruction of the evil one. Now, we'll return to that in just a bit. Let's just briefly look at the other consequences of sin. He then speaks to the woman and he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and pain you will bring forth children and yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There is a direct link here between the seed referring to the humanity who would come from her who in verse 20 is referred to as the mother of all of the living. Humanity would only come through the body of the female. That's how we get here. And it will be an experience that is marked by pain. It will be an experience marked by pain greatly increased. In fact, just as a point of interest, childbirth and the pain of childbirth is used throughout Scripture, both in the Old and the New Testament, as a metaphor for judgment. It's a metaphor for judgment. I won't repeat all of those. But when God is bringing judgment, He refers to it very often as... In these words, like the pain that comes on a woman in childbirth. And so that very entrance of pain into that most holy and wonderful of events is a reminder constantly of the reality of sin coming in in part through the woman who was deceived. Indeed, childbirth is shown to be throughout Scripture and throughout the history of humanity a difficult and dangerous endeavor. We have Rachel who died during childbirth and many of us have no people who experienced great, great struggles in childbirth. Throughout the hum- history of humanity, women died very often in childbirth. It was dangerous. It was painful. There is the pain that comes through barrenness, through the lack of ability to bear children. All of these reminders of the sin that has entered into the world. And there's many other ways that this pain in bearing children is shown merely by the result of bringing children into the world, into a fallen world. Children sold into slavery. Children offered as sacrifices to idols. Children killed daily in the womb of the mother. There's all kinds of pain and suffering that come through this bringing of children into the world. And yet ultimately, because it is connected with the promise of the seed that would destroy the work of Satan, even in the pain of childbirth, there is a reminder of the hope of the promise. The hope of the promise. With every, 
with every bit of suffering of bringing a child into the world, there is the reminder that it is a child who will take away this curse. It is a child who will remove this consequence of sin. It is a child and one who will come who will bring deliverance from this condition that has been brought into the world. There will also be disharmony between the relationship of a husband and a wife. We'll swing back around to this in a few weeks, but let's just notice here. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This relationship of helper and head is now fraught with disharmony and frustration. The term here, desire, has often been taken as exclusively referring to sexual desire. You'll run across that very often. Or it's been understood exclusively as the desire of the woman to rule over her husband, to exercise control over her husband, taken primarily from chapter 4, verse 7, where God says to Cain, sin has its desire is for you, in other words, to control you and to rule you. So some see a connection there, referring to this as Eve's desire to not be under the authority of her husband. And although sexual desire for the husband is a part of female sexuality created by God, good and beautiful in and of itself, and the desire to control the husband is a point of conflict in relationship that's borne itself out in the history of the world, it's probably not best to limit it to either one of those. But rather to see the desire here as the desire for intimate relationship, which includes both the idea of her sexuality and the desire for her husband and the desire to control her husband, to exercise a degree of rule or authority. And yet both of these will be frustrated, frustrated by the conflict, the enmity, the struggle that will exist between this most intimate of human relationships. And so the joyous and beautiful picture of verse 25 in chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed, united in one flesh, united in one purpose, delighting in the joyous unity of husband and wife will now experience frustration, conflict, abuse. So in other words, the ordered relationship of headship and submission will no longer be marked by peaceful unity and harmony, but by frustration and abuse. And we see that immediately, don't in verse 23 of chapter 4, in Lamech, One of the first occurrences we have here of the line of the seed of the serpent in marriage is Lamech's statement to his two wives, polygamy, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And such was the distortion of God's good purposes that entered into the world. And again... All of human history plays this out in all of its horror. The disharmony that is shown between a man and a woman and the distorted way that these roles are lived out are just continually before our eyes. The abuse and the disharmony of the genders and rape, divorce, polygamy, sex, slavery... Multiple husbands even, deception, the pain and the heartache that has come from that very relationship 
that was meant to be the highest expression of human joy and gladness and happiness and flourishing on the earth, now marked with everything but that. For the man, in verse 17, he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, in other words, because you have failed in your responsibility to protect her, have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Note here that he curses the ground, not Adam, but he curses the ground, is cursed because of you. And man who was given that privileged position of protector and provider for his family is no longer going to be able to do that with the ease that was before, but it's going to be marked by toil and pain and suffering and discouragement. And again, the history of man is a history in many ways of his struggle to live, his struggle to survive. And of course, with that as well, there is much mercy as there is with the pain of childbirth. There's the joy of bringing a life into the world. There's the joy of family. And though there is this new conflict and pain between man and the land, there is yet God's abundant provision for all of humanity. He provides overflowingly for the needs of man and beast and on his creation and on the earth. And yet we see that often creation is the means of judgment. In just a few chapters, it's going to be that same land that was a place of flourishing and blessing that is going to be the means of destruction for all of the human race, save eight. The land that was a place of the abundance of Egypt becomes rather a source of the plagues that God would send on them in fire and rain and hail and darkness and insects and so forth. The land that is a place of blessing and abundance now for many in the world will in that future day become again a source of God's destruction as he destroys all things not by water but by fire. We see the land used today in abundance in our land. We are overflowing with food and yet because of the greed and the, of men and the misuse of land we see it laying desolate and famine and starvation and lack of nutrition in other places around the world. So we see both the blessing and the provision of God as well as the punishment and the curse of God for sin and the result of human sinfulness. And so these then are the conditions. There's conflict between God and men. There's conflict between God and or man and the, the earth. There's conflict in human relationships epitomized here in the conflict between husband and wife. And yet in the midst of this judgment, in the midst of this curse, there is the grace of God. There is a promise. And this is the third point. Again, back at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. This is a promise. This is a promise. This is a word of hope. This is a word of God's declaration that the curse that has come in and the consequences for sin that have come into the world will be abolished. It will be changed. Man will be delivered. There will be a final hope and a final victory for humanity. 
And no doubt, probably more than anyone, Adam and Eve felt that because they alone out of all of humanity experienced what it was to live in that perfect idyllic conditions, to live without sin. And now they felt the greatness of this fall and the change of the conditions between themselves, between God and between the earth. And so this promise had a unique preciousness to them. But it is a promise and it is the promise that has sustained God's people throughout the history of humanity. And we see this conflict, particularly this conflict, however, out of which this promise arises, immediately in the birth of the first children of Adam and Eve. Verse 1 of chapter 4, the man had relations with his wife Eve, And out of their relations came two sons. First, Cain. She said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And then again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And in these first births, after the fall, the first instance of their obedience to the command to be fruitful and multiply on the earth, we see the first representation of the two seeds that would forever represent the conflict that exists between men. As the story unfolds to reveal Abel as one who was in harmony with God's will, which Hebrews 11.4 identifies Abel as one who brought a sacrifice in faith. He was genuinely in a right relationship with God. He was one covered which was symbolized in God clothing them in animal skins. And here Abel comes as one who is responding or who has responded to this promise. And immediately, what do we learn of Cain's jealousy? And he rises up and he kills his brother Abel. Cain was in conflict with God and Cain was in conflict with his brother And the result is that Cain rejected God's call to obedience, killed his righteous brother Abel, and then in verse 11 is personally cursed by God. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from his hand. Now this is not merely a family rivalry. This is not merely the disunity between two brothers. It is a fundamental spiritual enmity between two kinds of humanity. Two spiritual seeds, two spiritual realities locked in deadly conflict throughout the history of mankind. Now this is evident from the context itself, but it's affirmed for us through the progress of Revelation and particularly in the New Testament. Listen to a few of the testimonies there. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. By this, the children of God and the children of devil are obvious. Children speaks of spiritual source, spiritual alignment, origin. He says... For this, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Not as Cain, he says we should love one another, but not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. 
And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. You are of two different spiritual seeds, two different spiritual origins. And brothers, beloved, there's only two options, as you know and we've noted plenty of times. There's no middle ground. One is either a child of God and of the seed of the woman or a child of Satan. And that's not marked merely by egregious deeds. As a matter of fact, Jesus lays the same charge to the religious leaders in John chapter 8, 44. Earlier was 1 John chapter 3. He says in John chapter 8, You, speaking to the religious leaders, are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Again, father-son is likeness, a sharing of nature. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature implied, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He said the same thing to the religious leaders. Leaders back in the same idea in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, when he says to them that they are, in fact, murderers, just like their father of all of the prophets. Murderers beginning with the righteous blood of Abel, in verse 35. And so there are two seeds here. There's two realities. There is the seed of the serpent in conflict with God. And there is the seed of the woman in harmony with God. And this conflict is going to continue. And I want you to notice here, there's no other hope for resolution other than this promise. There's no one out of the natural generation, the natural product of human birth and humanity that is able to bring about the salvation. And notice that neither Adam or Eve asked for this. They neither sought God, nor did they ask Him for a resolution to the problem. This was God's provision. God is the one who sought them, and then God is the one who established the answer to their problem. Namely, that I will destroy this through one who will come. They are, this is sovereign grace. Salvation is of the Lord. If salvation is going to come, it's going to have to come from God Himself. If salvation is going to come, God is going to be the one who needs to provide it. God alone will accomplish what He requires. So, immediately we see then these two seeds in the working out of this promise. The seed of the serpent, Cain, kills his brother Abel, who was of faith, of true faith and righteousness, who believed the promise. And yet God does not leave them alone. At the end of chapter 4, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And it is this promise of the seed that is foremost in her mind. Notice what she says in verse 1 of chapter 4. At the birth of Cain, God has given me a man-child. And there is implication in that, that she had a 
hope that this first one born would be the answer to God's promise. Even more specific in verse 25, she, God has appointed for me another offspring. Offspring is a translation of the same word seed. He's provided for me another seed in place of Abel. Another who has come from my body who may be the one that God has provided to crush the head of the serpent. To undo the work that was done. And indeed this was a new line in the line of Abel because men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Just a simple acknowledgement that this was of a line of faith. A seed that came from the woman out of which the one would come to crush Satan on the head. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. This is the book then of the generations of Adam. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created him and made him in the likeness of God, he created them male and female. He blessed them and named them. The man or Adam in the day when they were created, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Reiteration, a repeat of the promise of creation in Genesis 1.26 to be fruitful and to multiply. But notice here that this promise to be fruitful and multiply is coming particularly through the line of Seth. The generations are through the line of Seth. The genealogy is accounted for through the line of Seth and not the line of Cain, which has already been mentioned in chapter 4, out of which we get the rebellious Lamech, who takes a place of arrogance even above God, who will give greater destruction even than God to those who refute him. Here we have, out of a different line, a different fruit. Men will call upon the name of the Lord. And so we have two different lines of humanity. And notice just as a note here, there is a slight change in language. Here it is, Adam, who lived 130 years, became the father of a son in his own likeness and according to his image. And there's a twofold implication here. One is to say that the image of God continues on through man. The image of God has not been abolished. He'll affirm that in chapter 9 of Genesis 6. One who murders and takes life is to have his own life taken because man is made in the image of God. It's affirmed in James chapter 3. And yet, this image is now no longer that perfect shining reflection of God's own glory, but is now marred with sin, and so it is in his own likeness. It is the image of God that reflects not only in reality God's image, but the reality of human sin upon that image. The image is present, but in some sense distorted and deformed. And yet, the promise is not lost. Now, when you read genealogies in Scripture, probably most of you, rather than memorizing those as your first verses, kind of tend to pass over them rather quickly and go, okay, here's a bunch of people whom I don't know. Let's get to the good stuff. And I understand that. I kind of tend to skim sometimes a little quicker than I should at that section. But these are highly important, highly important, and particularly in the book of Genesis. Because God made a promise, and that promise was going to come through a particular line. 
And it was necessary, remember, God is revealing this to Moses on Mount Sinai after Israel has been delivered. He's laying the foundation of the covenant that he has made with them and is making with them. And he's identifying them as coming from a particular line. They are a people of promise. And so with Seth, men again begin to call upon the name of the Lord. This is through the line of the woman. And look down at verse 31. In the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died different Lamech than chapter 4. And 32, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So the promise comes through Abel. Abel is killed. God replaces the seed with Seth. Seth has a line. At the end of his line comes Noah. Noah through whom God would save humanity. He said in verse 29, this was somehow revealed to Lamech, who said of his son Noah, this is the one who will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. In other words, in Noah the promise will be kept alive. In this one, this child, the promise will continue. This is reflecting the words of Genesis 3.15, looking with confidence. And in fact, God did use Noah. As we know, just right after that, the wickedness of man was great. God determined to destroy the earth, and he did, except sparing Noah alone. And look what he says again in verse 9. Of chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace. And these are the records of the generations of Noah. Why does he say these are the records of the generations of Noah? Because Noah is the embodiment of the promise. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. And Noah walked with God and he became the father of three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it is through Noah and his lineage that the promise would remain, the promise of the seed would remain, the promise of the one coming who would remain. And after all of humanity is destroyed, God reaffirms his covenant with Noah in chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons. And again, the ring of the creation blessing, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 7, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply it. And then God makes a covenant with all of humanity. I myself established my covenant with you through Noah and with your descendants, your seed after you. This is the seed. This is the promise. And with every living creature and so forth. And then we don't get very far. And we have Ham, one of the descendants of Noah, who commits an act of treachery and sin against his father. He saw the nakedness of his father, went and told his two brothers outside, Shem and Japheth. They cover him as a means of honoring their father, an expression of their faith. And yet, the two lines are evident again. When Noah awoke from his wine, verse 24, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan. Why does he say Canaan if, they're, if it's Ham who he's speaking to? Because the Canaanites were the descendants of Ham and the ones who would bear as a nation the curse. This is the cursed line. This is the cursed line of the serpent who would always be at odds with the people of God. 
A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also blessed, said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant, singling out Shem as one who would uniquely bear the promise of God. Uniquely bear the promise of God. And again, we see that borne out. Verse 10, chapter, or chapter 10, verse 1. These are the records of the generation of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, the sons who were born to them after the flood. And who comes ultimately through the line of Shem, who is from the line of Noah? It is Abraham. Abraham. And so we see again, this line, this promise is made alive and is kept alive. Through the line of Ham, we have the fruit and the result of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, which is itself the very emblem of rebellion against God. And those involved in the rebellion are everybody else, a part of that line. It could seem like it was lost, but through Shem, God is keeping the promise alive. Why do we have a list of the names? Because each one of those names represents the seed. And that seed represents the promise of God. And the promise of God represents the undoing of the curse and the salvation of man. This was the hope of God's people. It was the hope of the promise. In contradiction or contrast to the rebellion of men, God calls one from Abed, uh, from Shem's line, Abram, and he advances this promise to another level. We come into Genesis chapter 12, and he says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a direct link with the promise of Genesis 3.15. The curse that has come in you will find its undoing. You will be a blessing to the earth. You will be a blessing to the families of the earth. And notice again, this is God's doing. This is God's faithfulness to his promise. Abram himself, according to Joshua, was an idolater, was one who was in sin and not a believer in God. But God called him out of his unbelief to belief and in him by his own sovereign decision establishes a name that will be great. Again, reflecting the curse. The land that was cursed with thorns and thistles will be a land that becomes blessed. The name that fell into dishonor by the entrance of sin will be a name that I will make great among the families of the earth. The discord that is between men and God and one another will be reversed and there will be a blessing that comes to all the families of the earth. This is the promise of the seed. And yet, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is now embodied in this covenant relationship that God made with Abraham. We refer to that sometimes, of course, as the Abrahamic covenant. It's here. It's out of this promise that 
the seed takes on this new form that will define and narrow down God's fulfillment of that promise until he brings the one that will crush Satan on the head. So the Abrahamic covenant becomes the foundational covenant out of which God will bring salvation, crushing Satan's head. So the genealogies show the physical connection of Abraham to the seed of the woman through Seth, who came from Seth, Noah, who came from Noah, Shem, who came from Shem, Abraham. What is in Abraham? A covenant and a promise to bring a savior, as God said in 3.15, who would crush Satan on the head and out of him will come a blessing, a land, a people, a name, and God will do this. This promise is passed down to Isaac, it's passed down to Jacob, and then embodied in the nation whom God would call his own son in Exodus 4.22, his firstborn among all the nations of the earth. A people among whom God would dwell as a nation in Exodus 25.8 through the tabernacle and through the priesthood and through the sacrifices, men would once again be able to approach God from whom they are by nature estranged. And God would do this. And yet he narrows it down even more. Let me give you just one more. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This promise of the seed is now embodied in the covenant with Abraham, embodied by a nation to whom God has given his promises, and now embodied in a king, and a king, and in the very concept of Messiah, the one who would come to destroy the works of the devil. And so he says to David, God does through the... Prophet Nathan, when David, you'll remember, wanted to build a house for God, God says, no, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house, which is a dynasty. And he says to him, in verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies in the middle of the verse, and the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your descendants. Seed, I will raise up your seed after you and you will come forth and I will establish his, uh, uh, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I also will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. The seed now is through the line of King David. The seed and the promise now is through the line of a king of Israel. A promise to a king who will rule over a kingdom, a people, and a land, and a place that God has established. A very intentional link here with the Abrahamic covenant. Now the immediate reference here includes all of the earthly kings that would come from him. So Solomon, from whom the kingdom would be taken, and of course that's where the kingdom split, But God would keep that promise to all of the human kings 
throughout the line of the kings of Judah. Those are the kings whom he said he will correct when they commit iniquity, when he commits iniquity. And yet he's not merely talking about only human kings. This one is going to have a unique relation to him as my son who will rule over a kingdom which will be forever. Something that no other king could do by virtue of their sin and their death. Thus the implication here is this is a unique king who will be without sin, who will not be subject to death. And this was in fact the hope and the promise of God's people who were waiting continually for this one whom God promised who would rule over a kingdom forever. This is one whom had unique characteristics, whom David submitted himself to, though he was king. In Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, this is the king David whom God promised would be a shepherd over his people in Ezekiel 36 through 38, who would rule over his people in the place of Yahweh as Yahweh, in a land that God would give them in a people restored by His Spirit, no longer with a heart of stone, but with a heart of flesh, like a dead army in whom the Spirit of God breathes into life, so will be the people over whom this King reigns and rules. He will be a King who exercises judgment over the nations. He will be a King whose reign extends over all of the earth. We read that in Isaiah 9. He will be a Messiah marked by a unique presence of the Spirit. Isaiah 11, 42, chapter 64. He will be a king who in some way defeats death. As Peter noted in the Psalms that David prayed he would not let his Holy One undergo decay, and yet David died, so he's speaking of another. This is the Messiah, the one who would come. He is a king and they never really grasped this part, who would suffer, identified as the servant in Isaiah 53, this promised one, this Messiah, who would be bruised on the hill and yet bring life. And so this was the promise of the Messiah. This was the promise beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. It was the promise made by God. It was a promise kept alive by God from Eve, to Abel, to Seth, to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the nation of Israel that came out of the promise of the covenant with Abraham, to the promise to David who was raised up by God as a king over his people to bring a Messiah who would undo the curse, who would undo the curse and the sin brought by the evil one. This is the one that we just sang about. This is why he came. Listen to 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to have to mention these last points quickly. Listen to 1 John chapter 3. It says this, verse 8. I only read part of it earlier. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, what? To destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? It's sin. This is why he came. This is why we sing. Because he came to crush Satan on the head. To remove the curse. To take men from under 
the bondage of sin and bring them into the promise of life and of hope. This is why the Gospels begin with genealogies. Matthew says, this one who has come to you is not merely a man. He is the one who is the Messiah, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Remember, God made a promise through Abraham. The nations will be blessed. That promise encompasses God's original promise to Eve in the garden. This one who's promised will be the son of David, from the seed of David, the one who will also be king. In Luke chapter 3, he gives a genealogy to sow this one who comes is not merely the son of David, is not merely in the genealogy of Abraham, but in fact is traced all the way back to Adam himself. The genealogy of Luke ends with these words. He is the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the promise He is the promise. He is the fulfillment of God's faithfulness. He is the one he said would come. He is the one who would destroy the works of the devil. He was the one who would free men from their sin and the condemnation that it brings. He is the one who would bring life. He is the one whom beginning with Adam all the way through the history of the generations of men was the hope of God's people. The hope of God's people. Paul says this much in Galatians chapter 3. He says this. Obviously there's a lot more to be said with this. But he says in Genesis, Galatians chapter 3, he says this, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. He's just talked about the curse and the law. Even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, speaking here of the Mosaic covenant, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham, listen, and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Where did God affirm that promise? Well, he affirmed it in many ways, but Paul is specifically referring here to Genesis chapter 22. We won't go there. When Abraham demonstrated that he was of the faith, of the righteous, of the line, of the woman, when he obeyed God by offering his son Isaac upon the altar in obedience to God, Paul tells us in Romans 4, that he knew that the promise of God would stand. And so even if he did actually take the life of his son, he would receive him back by resurrection of the dead and God would be faithful to his promise. What promise? To bring a seed to destroy the works of the devil. And so Abraham stands here as the model of faith in the promise of God, in the promise of God. The promise that came through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and so forth. And the promise, the end of it, is Jesus Christ. He is the seed. He is the seed. And what did he do? Well, look back up. To the nation of Israel, he gave a law. 
The law was not how they would be righteous, but to show them to trust and look forward to the righteousness that God would provide. Those who misuse the law and make it as a means of justification of being right with God, he says, you have now entered into a predicament because the law brings a curse. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. How then is the promise going to come? Because, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By having become a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through him. This is Christ. He is the second Adam. Through Adam, sin entered into the world. Through one act of disobedience, sin spread to all men. Through one act of obedience, Romans chapter 5, righteousness came for the many. The obedience of the one led to death. The obedience of the other led to life. And resurrection and hope and glory 1 Corinthians 15, but now Christ has been raised, verse 20, from the dead, the first fruits of those who fell asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. He is the promise. He's the promise. Beloved, this is the faithfulness of God. This is the sovereign grace of God. This is the majesty of God who controls every detail of human history, who made a promise at the very beginning of the fall, at the beginning near creation, and has kept that promise, and it's now realized in Jesus Christ. There is no other Savior. But He is a Savior. And He, by belonging to Him, In belonging to him, we know the fulfillment of the promise. And so Paul could say in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You who belong to him, he will crush Satan under your feet. So in Christ, the devastation of sin has been removed. Sin brought death, Christ brings life. Sin brought darkness, Christ brings light. Sin brought rebellion and the hostility of humanity against God. Christ brings peace and reconciliation. We sang about it. Sin brought alienation from God. Christ brings one into the familial and eternal love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Sin brought pride, violence, adultery, immorality, disrespect, thievery, greed, jealousy, selfishness, disobedience, hate, disunity. Christ brings by His Spirit love, joy, peace, Kindness, humility, obedience, harmony, unity, wisdom. Sin brought the destruction of the earth. And in Christ, all things will be made new. And so that's the one we celebrate this morning and this season and every day. And so the question is, of course, or the exhortation is to rejoice, to worship, to live in the light of him who brought life to demonstrate ourselves as the people who have been redeemed from the curse and made alive in Christ. I hope that each one here knows him. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your promise. Thank you for your son. Help us to lay hold of the wondrous glories of our salvation. How can we fathom the depth of sin and even our own sin? We who know you, how deep it goes. How entrapped and enslaved and blind we were. The consequences of that. Help us to lay hold of that, that the grace of God in Christ crucified for us, removing the curse, making us heirs of the promise, citizens of a kingdom which is coming in a city that cannot pass away. We who were estranged made children and sons and daughters in fellowship with you. Capture our hearts and our affections with this glory. And if there are any who are yet still of the seed of the serpent, in darkness, death, deception, open their eyes and bring them to a true knowledge of the Son of God who destroyed the works of the devil and brought life and immortality to light. It's in his name we pray.